you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. As we are making our way through the book of Acts, there have been a number of times already where something pops up in the passage that is important but perhaps only dealt with briefly, and we might spend extended time on a particular issue, and today is, is one of those days. So, while we will be covering a number of passages of Scripture today, we're really zeroing in on only one verse in Acts 13 as our primary text for the sermon, and then we're going to go to a lot of other parts of the New Testament uh, to, to get more information about this. I always feel burdened when this topic comes up in a sermon because I just know from uh, having had so many conversations with so many believers over the years on this topic, I I know how people respond to this topic or think about this topic, uh, and I know the kinds of uh, objections that are sometimes raised. So to to keep you from being in suspense, I'll just go ahead and tell you the topic, and then we're going to sort of work our way slowly. Everybody take a deep breath. Are you ready? Deep breath. We're going to be discussing the doctrine of predestination today. You can breathe out. Don't keep holding it. Breathe out. Uh, The the doctrine of predestination uh, is a a doctrine that sort of makes blood pressure rise a lot of times amongst uh, even genuine Christians who love God's Word, but sometimes there can be disagreements, and this is a, a touchy issue. I'm already nervous talking about it, as I always am. But, um, you know, it's been, it's been interesting in the life of our church. There have been about four people, maybe more, I don't know all the stories, but from four people I know who've come to trust in Christ through this doctrine, uh, which you might not think, but even in the last few months, two individuals, one of them will be getting baptized, Lord willing, next Sunday, who's here in the room, Jared Smith, but individuals who were confronted by this doctrine, in fact, if I can just tell part of his story now, although I want to leave some of this for next week, Jared started coming here a number of months ago, and you know, would have been a professing Christian. And he would have said, you know, I believe the Bible, and uh, don't really love it that much, but I believe it. I believe it's true. And then uh, early in Acts, the predestination came up in chapter 4, and there was a sermon on that, and, and Jared said that sermon really did not sit well with him. He went home just going, that cannot be right, what, what, uh, what this guy said about that doctor just can't be right. And so he goes home, and he's troubled about that, and over a period of months, he begins to investigate, and he's in a Bible study with Daniel Walker and with Papa Fred, and they are, they're talking about this doctrine in the Bible study, and Fred gives a book on the topic to Jared, and Jared goes home and reads the whole book that night, I believe, which is, you know, something's going on when that happens. And over the course of several months, especially reading Ephesians 1 and 2, I believe, was, was a ma- major passage the Lord opened Jared's eyes not just to the doctrine of predestination being true, but to the gospel itself being glorious. And he believes he was converted studying this doctrine. And then, well, we could tell more stories, but a roommate of theirs, a very similar thing has happened even more recently. So, when I hear stories like that, I say, I don't want to speed up when this topic comes up. I want to slow down. Because if the Lord is using this to bring people to Himself, there's no reason not to linger on it. And the fact that it's controversial means we should linger. I'm not one of these people that thinks, okay, that's controversial, let's just skip over that, we'll edit that out, we'll leave it in one sentence, and we'll just move on quickly. My, I have the opposite, maybe I'm a contrarian by nature, okay, I probably am, but when, when something is difficult, I want to spend ten times more time thinking about it to try to understand what is the Bible really teaching on this doctrine. So, before I get too carried away with this, I want to go ahead and just make a, uh, you know, a suggestion for summer reading.
John Piper put out his, uh, his life work here. This is his magnum opus, I think he would call it. It's a 700-plus page book called Providence, and he said he's been working on it for most of his life, is what he would say in a sense, although he, he's just been writing it more recently. But this book right here, let, let, me, make, let me make a… It's, I'm not… This is, sounds funny because who reads books like this, but let me just say something seriously. Let me give you a challenge, and this challenge goes for two kinds of people, which is probably most of us in the room. Christians who already believe this doctrine… I would say none of us believes it as much as we should because we complain, which means we don't really believe God's sovereign and good, which means we really need to study this doctrine more, right? So if, if you're a Christian who believes it already, I would say this book is worth your time. If you're a Christian and you say, listen, I love the Lord Jesus, I love the gospel, and I don't think predestination, as you're about to explain it, is what the Bible is actually saying, I, you might think it, it conflicts with John 3.16 and verses like that. Uh, I, I would say this sincerely. This book is not hard to read. It is huge. It is not hard to read. This is not so scholarly that you have to know the original languages to make sense out of it. What I would recommend is this. The ch any chapter in here, anybody in this room could pretty much pick up and read right now, I think. So, what I would say is I am myself working through it slowly, okay? And Jerry and others, my dad has been reading it. I know uh, uh, Ian's been reading it. A number of y'all have already been reading it. I would say, if you want a copy, we'll buy it for you. We've got a few left. We'll give it to you. And I would say, over the course of this summer, just read a little bit every day. And I, just see, Piper deals with all the Scripture that you can imagine on the topic, from Genesis to Revelation. And he works through them. And you feel like you're really reading the Bible more than you're reading Piper. He just compiles texts of Scripture and then walks through them. And I would say, this would be worth your time, especially if you doubt that this is what's taught in the Bible. I, I would wonder if by prayer and meditation, if you read through this book, if you would still believe that at the end of the book. I, I wonder if you would still… I, I think you might start to see, by God's grace, this is not just true, it's also good news, not, not bad news as it is often perceived. I'll just tell you once, the sermon will probably be lengthy. Let me read you the testimony of, of Jonathan Edwards on this from 300 years ago. Jonathan Edwards is known for this doctrine. He taught it frequently, but he did not always like the doctrine. And here is what, here is what he said. From my childhood up, this is Jonathan Edwards, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom He would to eternal life and rejecting whom He pleased. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and His justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to His own sovereign pleasure. But never could I give an account of how or by what means I was so convinced, not in the least imagining at the time nor a long time after, that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it, but only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day till this so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense, in God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy and hardening whom He will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as anything that I see with my eyes, at least it is so at times. 
I have often since not only had a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. So again, I want to make clear that my sermon today is for everyone, of course. But I want to specifically, and I hope do it in a, in a humble way, my, my goal is to really target individuals in the room who are not yet convinced that this is what the Bible teaches, number one, or that it's good news, number two. So if you say, I, I mean, I see the Word, I read the New Testament, I love God's Word, and I see the Word predestination, it's in the New Testament, and I know it talks about election and choosing and God's sovereignty, but I just, there's just no way it means what it sounds like it means. There's just no way Romans 9 means what it sounds like it's saying. There's no way Ephesians 1 means what it sounds like it's saying. It just can't mean that. It doesn't fit with verses like, God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whoever believes will be saved, or whosoever will may come and take the free gift of the water of life without price in Revelation 22, or verses like 1 Timothy 2, God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, or 2 Peter chapter 3, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, or Ezekiel, is it 33, where it says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn and live. Those verses, to me, someone might say, automatically rule out the possibility of the doctrine of unconditional election. It just can't be true. God is not like that. You're caricaturing God. That's, that's what people have said to me, usually in a nice way, but I've, I've been told that many times over the years. And so, let's look at our passage today, and we're going to spend at least two weeks on this part of Acts. I'll read it in context, and then we'll zero in on, on the verse for today. Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is in Pisidian Antioch. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, this is our verse for today, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stir, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So look with me here at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, just bear with me as I read some quotes. I know it's hard to listen when someone's reading quotes for a long time. I'm just going to read from various commentaries I have on Acts on this verse, just to get you just kind of a sampling of what commentators say about that verse. Here's one commentator. The ultimate cause of their faith, remember, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, the ultimate cause of their faith is not found in themselves. It is found in the eternal decree of God. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, these Gentiles share in eternal life not because they are better than 
uh, those Jews who rejected the offer of eternal life in Christ, they share in that life because God, in His sovereign mercy, chose them to eternal life from before the foundation of the world. Here's another commentary, and he writes this, using predestination terminology, Luke is careful to point out here as elsewhere that this faith is above all God's work. This faith is above all God's work, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Another commentary. Some commentators, offended by what they regard as an extreme predestinarianism in this phrase, have tried in various ways to soften it, but the Greek verb tasso means to ordain. Another commentator. This refers to God's sovereign work over salvation where God has assigned those who will come to eternal life. The passive voice, as many as were ordained, it's passive, the passive voice indicates that God does the assigning. It is as strong a passage on God's sovereignty as anywhere in Luke-Acts and has Old Testament Jewish roots. Just as God was the major active agent in the events of Israel's history earlier in the speech, so He is the active agent in bringing Gentiles to Himself. Remember last Sunday, Paul's sermon? in that same synagogue. Remember, remember, every action was done by God. God brought them out of Egypt. God, you know, it, it, the whole, God raised up Saul. He disposed of Saul. He raised up David. The whole sermon in church 13 was God's sovereignty. Another commentator, the expression stresses God's sovereign work in moving people to come to faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah and Savior. Another one, the present verse is, an unquali- is as unqualified a statement of absolute predestination as is found anywhere in the New Testament. And on it goes. I could keep reading, but I, I, will, I will continue on. I have a, several more commentators, but I, I, will just, I will leave it at that. So, I, I want to give you a three-point outline for the sermon, and I want to walk through a number of passages. And here's what I ask of you. I, if you're not fully convinced, here's what I would ask you. Do everything you possibly can in this moment to try to look at these texts and to be as honest with what they are saying as you possibly can. R.C. Sproul, who is also known for teaching on this doctrine, when he was in seminary, did not believe this doctrine was, was taught in the Bible. Uh, he was what you might call classically an Arminian or a Wesleyan, that, that, that free will was the ultimate determining factor in who comes to Christ and who doesn't. And R.C. Sproul said he sat through class on Romans, and he sat through a class on Jonathan Edwards on this topic, and he said over and over and over, he just thought this cannot be right, but he said he put a placard on his desk as he was working that said, my job is not to say at first what I want the Bible to say, but to say what the text actually says. That's, that's, the, that's the encouragement I would give you. What does the text really say? So, three points. The purpose of predestination, that's our heading. The purpose of predestination, number one, is to humble man and glorify God. I'm, I'm adapting these from Grudem. The purpose of predestination, number one, to humble man and glorify God. That's one point. To humble man and glorify God. Number two, to assure us of God's love, which may sound counterintuitive to assure us of God's love. And number three sounds even more counterintuitive, to embolden evangelism. A lot of people think believing in unconditional election destroys evangelism. I think it's the only hope for evangelism, to embolden evangelism. And we're going to walk through these uh, starting with number one, to humble man and to glorify God. Can you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? just a little bit to your right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'm going to read you a different verse. 
As you're getting there, I'm going to read you, uh, this is John Piper's definition of unconditional election or the doctrine of election. Listen carefully to this. Piper defines it this way, unconditional election, so what is this? What are we actually talking about? Unconditional election is God's free choice before creation, not based on foreseen faith, to which traitors He will grant faith and repentance, pardoning them and adopting them into His everlasting family of joy. Read that again. This is the doctrine. Unconditional election is God's free choice before creation, not based on foreseen faith or any merit, to which traitors, sinners like us, to which traitors He will grant faith and repentance, pardoning them and adopting them into His everlasting family of joy. Now, you're in 1 Corinthians 2. Let me read a different passage. Don't turn there. Don't have time. Colossians 3, verse 12. The doctrine of predestination is meant to humble man and to glorify God. So, listen to this parallel passage. Colossians 3, 12. Paul says, put in, so he's talking to a church, put on then as God's elect, or as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, we've all probably met people in our life who believe in unconditional election and have been real jerks about it, okay? We've all been, we call that the cage stage. Have you heard of the cage stage? This is when you first kind of come to believe these doctrines, and you're like, but the church I grew up in didn't believe it. And you go back to your church, you grew up, you're like, I need to talk to the pastor. And then you just like, you just like start like giving, like letting everybody have it about this doctrine. But we don't want to be like that, okay? That's not, that's not a biblical reaction. Uh, if an arrogant response to believing the doctrines of grace is actually a failure to believe the doctrines of grace. Because there's nothing more humbling than to say, nothing in me is why He chose me. You know, you know how humbling that is? Nothing in me. No reason at all, including foreseen faith, is why I'm a Christian. That's the most humbling thing that you could ever say about yourself. So, arrogant people who love this doctrine are not really believing it. Colossians, again, the verse, put on then as God's chosen ones, humility. Do, do you have a conception in your mind as a Christian of a connection between the doctrine of election and human humility, personal humility? Because Paul sees a connection. Put on as God's elect humility. In other words, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of being chosen by God for salvation before time, that doctrine is not meant to stick your chest out and say, I know this doctrine and you don't, so I'm better than you. The point of this doctrine is to flatten you and say, you would still be lost in your sin heading toward a Christless eternity under God's judgment if He had not sovereignly intervened in your life and snatched you as a brand from the fire. You owe everything, counting your faith, you owe it all to God's grace. It's not all God plus my faith, that He helps me work up, but it's still ultimately up to my free will to decide. No, it's up to His free will. Whose free will? I'm all for free will, but whose ultimate free will is in control in the doctrine of election? I would argue it is God's freedom, not mine, that has ultimate control in this. That creates humility. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where you are. Verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, you get this? Paul shows up to Corinth. We'll get here in Acts later. He shows up, and Paul is weak and afraid. Why? 
Paul knows he cannot force someone to become a Christian. He can't make that happen. So what does he do? The Corinthians loved eloquence and oratory, and Paul was not good as an eloquent speaker, and he shows up, and he's not a great eloquent speaker. How is Paul going to get people to follow his message when he's not eloquent? And they, they love eloquence. He says, I was going to depend not on my weaknesses, I was going to depend on the power of the Spirit at work through my message of the gospel to bring about faith. Now, look at verse 14. This is how hopeless our… Before I read this, one of the big hang-ups on this doctrine, I think, one of them, there's several… One big hang-up on this doctrine is what we're going to talk about in Sunday school next week, the doctrine of original sin and total depravity. If I think that I'm pretty sinful upon birth, but there's still enough in my will left by God's grace that I can sort of still make a neutral free will choice to choose God, then I would… I say this humbly. If that's what you believe, which is, by the way, what probably most Baptists have believed in the last century… I would argue that you have not yet reckoned with the doctrine of total depravity, that we are not born pretty flawed, we are born dead. And dead means spiritually dead, not almost dead, dead. And dead people don't make good decisions. Just leave that to ponder. Look at verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. This is an unbeliever being described. Well, let me, start, let me start a little early. Let me start in 12. This will be better. Give a little context. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, that is Christians. Verse 14, the natural person, that is an unbeliever, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, or they are discerned spiritually. Now, let's read that again, verse 14. The natural person, this is someone who's not born again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, namely the gospel. They don't accept the gospel. Why? For they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're only understood spiritually. They're only discerned through the Spirit. But do you see what he's saying? A natural person has a will. But your will is not free. It is actually enslaved to your desires. Now, not to get philosophical here, but you always choose what you most want. That's how, you, that's how your will works. You say, no, I don't. You say, what, what if I'm on the street and I'm walking down the road and someone comes up and puts a gun to my head and says, give me your wallet. I don't want to give, me, give them their wallet, but I give it to them anyway. I'm not doing what I want. I'm doing what I don't want to do under compulsion. I would say, no, you're still doing what you most want. You would rather give them your wallet than your life. You're doing what you most want. Even in a tragic situation where someone contemplates suicide, they are, they are still thinking about what they think will be best, what they think will alleviate the pain or make them happier or whatever it may be. We're always doing what we most want to do. Now, there are limitations. You can't choose to fly just because you want to, but within the realm of what we are able to do, we always choose what we most desire. You say, that's not true. When I was a kid, my dad made me mow the lawn. I hated doing it. Yes, but you would rather sweat and mow the lawn in the hot sun than get your dad mad at you. Or if not, you would rather get your dad mad at you, then that's what you most desired. You always do what you most desire. You see how this works? And there's no way out of this. You, you always do what you most desire. Now, here's the question. 
If someone is not born again, the natural person, they have a will that is enslaved to their desires. And I will tell you something about all of us before we were born again, we did not desire Jesus. We did not desire Jesus for Jesus. We may have desired Jesus because we were scared of hell as a seven-year-old, and I'm not saying seven-year-olds don't get converted. A number of you got converted before seven. But what I'm saying is you could be seven years old like I was, and you could be scared of hell and think it's real, and you could have feelings of some guilt about your sin which are real, and you could say, okay, Jesus can get me out of hell and get rid of guilt and give some purpose to my life, and you can pray the sinner's prayer and never for a moment desire Jesus for Jesus. You can be desiring Jesus for what He does for you. It doesn't take the new birth to want Jesus as useful. Who doesn't want demons cast out of them? Who doesn't want to be healed when they're sick? Who doesn't want the feeding of the 5,000 when you're hungry and haven't eaten in three days? Everybody wants Jesus when He's useful. But to want Jesus because He's beautiful is not something the natural man is capable of doing morally. They are like, no offense to this, but like, it's like a three-year-old trying to enjoy the Sistine Chapel. They're just not capable. They're so in love with other things. And so, when it comes to our sin, we are so in love with God's gifts and so blind and deaf to the beauty of the Creator that we can think of Him as useful to get things from Him, but we cannot see Him as beautiful until the eyes of our heart are opened. The Spirit is born again, regenerated by the Spirit, and suddenly for the first time, you thought, the, the, you thought your, your Christian parents were just saying things about God being great and wonderful and glorious, but now you're tasting and seeing that He's good. He's satisfying. What makes that miracle happen? I'm just telling you, it's not your choice at the end of the day that creates that sense of beauty. It's the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. The natural person with their will, what do they do with their will in the gospel? They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. So, they have a will. And what do they do all day, every day? They refuse the gospel. Why? Because it's folly to them. To them, it's boring. It's irrelevant. It's far less exciting than the latest movie, the latest TV show. Netflix is 10,000 times more exciting than hearing a gospel sermon. I mean, what are you talking… Why, why would you want to spend all your time thinking about these things about Jesus? I mean, I get that you've got to talk about Him to get the eternal life and all that, but I mean, He's not enjoyable in and of Himself. He's useful. He's not beautiful. But the natural person just thinks it's folly. He's not able to understand them because they're only discerned spiritually. So, what makes the difference? What turns the corner? Look back at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 18 of chapter 1. For the word of the cross, the gospel message, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is God humbling man. And dis the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, now what makes someone not see the gospel as folly, but as beauty, the power of God, and believe in it. What makes that happen since everybody else is rejecting it? Verse 22, for Jews demand signs, miracles, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here's the difference, but to those who are called by God, both Jews and Greeks Christ 
the power of God. He's seen as the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see this? What makes the difference? Everybody, when they hear the gospel, thinks of it as boring, folly, not glorious, less exciting than a thousand other things. What makes you perceive it as glorious, moving, life-transforming? What does that? And the answer is God called you. And we're not talking about the general call of the gospel, like I'm doing it right now, like believe in Jesus. I'm making a general call to everyone listening, and you can either accept it or reject it. But what makes this different is this is the internal effective call. Everyone who is called by God in this sense responds with faith. That's why Romans 8 says, as many as are called are justified, and as many as are justified are glorified. How do you make… Every called person in Romans 8 will become a justified person. How are we justified? By faith. That means the call creates the faith that creates salvation. So, this call is like Jesus standing at Lazarus' tomb. Remember, He could have said, everybody come forth, and it would have been a very different graveyard. He said, Lazarus, come forth. That was not an option for Lazarus, was it? Was Lazarus going, well, I'll think about it. I don't know. Being dead is kind of cool. I'm enjoying this. No. What what does Lazarus say? He says, he just comes right out. So, you see there, God's sovereign call creates what it commands, come forth. You would say, Jesus, you're wasting your time. You're talking to dead people. They're not going to obey you. They're dead. And I think Paul, Jesus would say back to us, that's what happens every time you do evangelism. Every evangelistic encounter happens in a graveyard because unbelievers like I was are dead in sin. How is a dead person going to respond with joy and faith to the gospel? It's folly. The answer, Lazarus, come forth. That's how it happens. God, through the message, through His Spirit, creates what He commands. He creates the very thing He calls for. Turn and live. And what happens? The Spirit creates the turning and the living within us. Now, if that's not enough, look at verse 26. So, here the word calling is about God calling you to faith. It's not just about your life calling. Verse 26, for consider your calling. Consider where you were in life when God saved you, called you, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being, no flesh, might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you look over human history, why is it that more people are Christians from lower levels of society than from the upper echelons of society? I mean, think about it historically. Are there some really rich people who've become Christians? Absolutely. Are there some celebrities who've become Christians? Well, sometimes I'm like, I think so. I'm not quite sure what's going on here, but I think so. Uh, Yeah, the Lord sometimes will call a massive celebrity or an incredibly wealthy business owner to, to, to faith in Christ. But have you noticed, generally speaking, the celebrities are not the Christians? God chooses the low and the despised, those who are thought ignorant, those who are thought less than, those who are thought beneath. He chooses more of them to be saved. James chapter 2, verse 5. 
Has God not chosen those who are economically poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What makes the difference is God's choice, God's call. Why are more people Christians generally who are at the lower levels of society? Because God wants to flip human structures upside down. If God mainly chose the rich and the powerful and the best-looking people and the celebrities, if God mainly chose them and He mainly left the impoverished people out of the kingdom and He mainly did that, we would think God chose us because we're rich, powerful, influential celebrities. But God intentionally will hide the gospel from those who are on the upper levels and reveal it to little children in that sense so that He gets the glory and we are humbled so that we can never boast in ourselves, but we boast in God. Listen, Even the fact that you are a Christian should lead to you bragging about God's grace, not ultimately about a decisive decision that you or I made. Turn with me to the left to Matthew chapter 11. A question I I love to ask, I think I've told this story a few years ago, when I was in Bible college. I'll just tell you, in my Bible college, almost everybody disagreed with me on this topic. In my dorm, my teachers, I had one teacher who agreed. Just, I just, I, it was an interesting experience. But I had a good friend of mine who thought I was just so wrong on this topic. He's like, that's not what the Bible means. And so we had, we had little friendly discussions. He's a great friend of mine. His name's Jeremiah. And uh, I, would, I remember asking Jeremiah, we're in a parking lot at our, at, at our campus. I said, Jeremiah. I said, see, he has a brother. He's got a bunch of siblings. He's got a brother who's not a Christian. I said, Jeremiah. You and your brother grew up in the same home, same parents, same church experience. Y'all both heard the same gospel the same, almost the same number of times, correct? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, we grew up together. You're a believer and he is not right now. Why? And if he's being consistent with his view of free will, now listen, I'm not trying to insult anybody. I'm trying to be honest. The the classical Arminian Wesleyan view of free will says this has to be the answer, even though people resist this answer, it is logically necessary if you believe in that version of free will. You have to say, if you heard the same gospel and grew up in the same home and church as your brother, and your brother rejected the gospel and you accepted it, you have to say that the decisive factor in the difference was you made a better choice. You have to. And I know you don't want to say that. You want to say it was God's grace, but as soon as you say that, then you believe in predestination. (laughs) See, if, if you say, no, the reason I am a believer, and this is what Jeremiah said to me in the parking lot, he said, it's the grace of God is why I'm a believer. I said, you can't say that, and you're, I can say that because I believe in predestination. You can't say that because you're saying God's grace made the difference. And you, in your theology, God drew your brother, and He drew you with prevenient grace, the grace that comes before conversion. He drew your brother, and He drew you. He wooed you. He, draw, he drew you to the point where He could put your will at a neutral point, where your will could go one way or the other. And the, 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 the tie vote in the Senate, right, when it's 50 50, the tie vote that breaks it, that's the deciding vote. And if you believe in free will, you have to say your free will is the deciding vote, in which case you made a better decision than your brother. The reason you're a Christian, your brother is not, is because you made better use of free will than he did. Now, even though an Arminian will say to me, oh no, but it was God's grace. I said, well, was God not gracious to your brother? Didn't he draw your brother too? Well, yeah, prevenient grace. Okay, God put you in a neutral spot where you can make a free will decision one way or the other, and your brother chose to reject, you chose to accept. The difference maker was in you, not in God. Do you see? That, now, even though no Arminian is going to say this, I'm saying it's logically required that you then say there's a ground for boasting in your will. And 1 Corinthians 1 is saying, even the willingness to choose Jesus was a response to His irresistible grace in your life. 
And if you say irresistible doesn't work with choice, because if it's irresistible, it's not really my decision. And I would say, you were made for Jesus, even if you're not a Christian. You were made, you were designed by God for, for Jesus. And when He opens the blind eyes that you have in your heart to see the glory of Jesus, you will do two things. You will necessarily and in one sense freely or truly choose Him. Because when you see the glory of what you were made for, you can't say no because your desire is for Him. You see? God can be both sovereign over our salvation and not violate our will because we always do what we want, right? And we don't want Jesus. And then suddenly we want Jesus. And so now we pursue Him. What made the difference? The answer has to be God called you from death to life. God called you. And Jesus teaches the same doctrine. Look at Matthew 11, verse 25. This is after preaching to cities that refused to repent, Chorazon and Bethsaida, north near the Sea of Galilee. They, they refused the gospel. Well, let me start back in verse 20. Let's start in verse 23, Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, that's, that's right on the Sea of Galilee where Peter grew up or where he lived. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, just pause there. You, you see the freedom of God in salvation? Could God have sent a miracle worker? Could He Himself have gone to Sodom and performed works and they would have repented? Yes. And did God do that? No. <laughs> That's right in the… T I mean, I know, I know how hard this is emotionally at first to, to, to believe. But He just said, again, verse… middle of verse 23, for if the mighty works, the miracles, done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, Sodom would have repented had Jesus gone there and done the miracles He did in Capernaum. They would have repented and God would not have judged them. But did God send a miracle worker to Sodom? No. Did He therefore righteously let them stay in their sin and judge them? Yes, that's, a, that's, that's clear in that passage. Keep, keep, we'll keep going, verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was God's free will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, just pause here. Do you see Jesus is delighting in this doctrine? In my experience, when most Christians first hear this taught, the first reaction is, that can't be true. Th that sounds horrifying, like Jonathan Edwards. I don't like it. Over time, here's what I've found in so many instances. People will wrestle with this doctrine for months, for months, maybe even years. Jerry, you didn't grow up with this particular doctrine. Uh, a, a lot of people did not grow up with this doctrine, and you wrestle with it over the course of months and even years, and at the end of that time, like, like what happened to Edwards happens to you, suddenly what looked like an ugly doctrine starts becoming a delightful doctrine. And suddenly you start loving the fact that God is actually in control, that God is God, and I am not. And I think one of the hardest shifts on this issue 
is to go from a, uh, what is it, a geocentric versus a heliocentric view of the world? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) An honest answer there. So, you know, geocentric, everybody thought the earth was the center, right? We were the center of the universe. Everything circled around us. And suddenly you realize God's highest commitment in the universe is His glory. I'm not at the dead center of the universe. God is. And that's a Copernican revolution. This is not, it doesn't mean you weren't saved before, and of course, Arminians are Christians, of course, but what I'm saying is this is a big turning point for a lot of people, where they go, God is that glorious, He is that God-centered, He is that, in, he is that zealous for His name, that He will do an Exodus event where, think about this, think about it, we went through Exodus, did the Egyptians deserve forgiveness and salvation? Egyptians. No. Did Israel deserve acceptance and forgiveness? No. So what you have is two undeserving groups. And what does God want to do? I have raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, that I might display my power to him and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what does God do? We're told that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart twice before we're ever told anything about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Go read Exodus 4 and 7. What happens? God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to resist the message to let the people go. Why would God do that? So that I am forced, according to my own plan, to send ten plagues against Pharaoh. And these plagues will systematically show that I'm greater than all the Egyptian gods, like the Nile god and the, all those different gods, the sun god. And I'm going I'm to get great glory over Pharaoh and the greatest army in the world, the greatest pantheon of gods. I'm going to show by one plague after another that I am the true God. Those are false idols. And at the end of it all, I am going to choose to save undeservedly a group of several million people called the Jews, plus a few Egyptians were thrown in, a mixed multitude. And I'm going to choose to harden Pharaoh and his leaders so that they deservedly, deservedly perish in their sin. And what, why, would God, why wouldn't God save everybody? God desires all to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. Why wouldn't God save everybody? Well, the answer is this. God does have a real desire, I believe, for the salvation of all people, but I believe He has a greater commitment. Now, just hang with me for a few minutes, okay, on this. By the way, everybody actually agrees with this point, even if you don't think you do. People who take the more typical free will position would say, God desires to save every human being, but He has a greater desire, which is to respect human freedom. And so, God would rather let people perish in their sins than violate human freedom, right? So, God desires their salvation, but He's not going to choose that. He has a greater desire, a deeper desire, namely maintaining what, he can, what would be considered human autonomy, human free, free will. So, there's a deeper desire. So, God does not actually act to do what He wants because He has a deeper desire. And I have a very similar view. I believe God also desires the salvation of all in some sense. He doesn't take the, the delight in the death of the wicked in a true sense, but he has a deeper desire, namely the display of his glory in all of its attributes. And I think that's a much more satisfying answer than human autonomy and free will, because I think it's a more biblical answer. So, back to Egypt. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. By the way, that just means he gave Pharaoh over to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's, we're all proud naturally. What does God need to do to make us more proud? Step back. What are you going to do? You're going to become more proud, more bitter, more more angry, more unforgiving? Isn't that what we do when the Spirit is absent in a sense? You just become more of your flesh. So God steps back and gives Pharaoh more of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I'm doing it my way or the highway. And the Lord says, I guess it's going to be the highway at this point. And so then the Lord takes them out to the Red Sea, splits the waters, brings the peoples through, drowns the Egyptian army, and then what happens? There's an entire chapter. We went through it a year and a half ago. Exodus 15, 
Israel sings a song led by Moses, inspired by the Spirit, and it's unlike any song Hillsong has ever written. That was a cheap shot, but it was well-deserved. <laughs> Exodus 15, what do they do? They say, praise the Lord, mighty in battle, the horse and his rider, he is drowned in the sea. Who is like the Lord among all the gods? There is no one like Him. The Lord has judged Pharaoh and his hosts. They are gone, sunk like lead in the mighty waters. You know what's happening? God wants to be glorified not just for the attribute of being nice. God wants to be glorified for the attributes of grace and mercy, which would never have been visible had the fall never happened. Well, if we're really going to go for it today, we might as well. I mean, think about this for a second. If there had been no fall, what would we know of God's grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a perfect person like me doesn't quite work. Uh, the reason grace is amazing is because God had a plan that included the fall, included all of my failure, so that I could one day cling to the bloody cross and say, why, oh why would you choose me? There's nothing good in me. Spurgeon said, you know, Spurgeon said, God surely chose me before I was born because nobody would have chosen me after. And He had to have chosen me for reasons unknown to me because I never could find any reason in myself why He would look upon me with special saving love. So at the Red Sea, when that all happens, God is praised for His grace because He undeservedly saved Israel. They, I mean, a bunch of grumbling people, He saved them by the blood of the Lamb. Miraculous deliverance, we're talking about it three and a half thousand years later. God displayed His grace and mercy through saving Israel. He displayed His wisdom in the way He triumphed over Pharaoh. He displayed His holiness in the plagues, His power and wrath in the Red Sea. God is a God that wants to be seen in all His facets like a great jewel or diamond that you turn in the light to see every angle. And God says, my ultimate commitment is to display my glory in all of its attributes mercy and grace, holiness and wrath, power and judgment, patience and goodness. I want, I want all my attributes visible. And so, through the fall, God looks into time and God chooses to save undeservedly countless millions of the redeemed to win them to Christ. He gives them as a love gift to the Son. And in John, Jesus says, I came to do my Father's will, which is to save all that He has given me. That's not everybody. That's His bride. He came to die for His bride in a special way. Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself up for her. There's a special way in which He died for His own, in which He did not die for all in that sense. The good shepherd laid down His life for the sheep, not the wolves in the same way. There's a special way in which the blood of Jesus purchased not just potential forgiveness, but actual salvation for His bride. You think the cross just made potential salvation? And you've got to complete the work by including your free will choice to make, it, to, make, to make the machine turn on? Like, you got the key. He made the machine of forgiveness, and your free will is the key. And if you go turn the crank, it will work for you. No. The key that is your choice was part of what Christ purchased. He said, where is that in the Bible? How about this? At the Last Supper, He holds up the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many. No. The new covenant promises include this. I will put the fear of me within their hearts so they will never turn away from me. I will give them a new heart. I will write my law on their hearts so that they will delight in doing my will. It's not simply the potential of salvation that Jesus bought on the cross. It's actual, your conversion was part of what He purchased. So the very fact that you believe and repent is, an, is a fruit of the death of Jesus for His own. That's unique. 
Let, let, just before we get… Wow, we're in trouble today. I'm on point number one still. This is not good. We, <laughs> we will probably not finish the sermon right now, but I got a few more things that I want to jump to quickly. This will be a one-point sermon. Turn with me to Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. So I at least want to get to point two. Point two says that the purpose of predestination is to assure us that is the elect of God's, I want to say His special, selective, saving love. If all you know so far on this talk, doctrine is John 3.16, and John 3.16 is a glorious verse, that God so loved the world, He gave His Son, whoever believes will be saved. That is a wonderful love of God for the world. There's a real offer of salvation for all who will believe. I believe that is true. My question is, who's going to believe? Yes, whoever's, whosoever will may come. Say that to a room full of people who love their sin. What makes them willing? God says, I will make them willing in the day of my power. Okay, so Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by your free will. No, no, no. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just verse 4. So, we're dead in sin, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. Now, now just pause here real quick. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive. This is important. This is a love that is more specific than the John 3.16 love. Are you following me? John 3.16, love is for the world. There's a general desire for all to be saved. There's an offer for anybody who will believe, but that's not what this is talking about. This says, those God loves in this sense, He saves. He makes them alive. If you have been made alive, there is a special love of God that is not given to all, that is given to His bride. Christ loves His wife in a way that He does not love other women. You understand what I mean? There's a special way. Because of the great love with which He loved us, He made us alive. I, here's my burden today, one of the burdens. If you do not grow up hearing this and you, you just think this sounds so out there, even now, you're like, I still do not like this. I would say, okay, be patient. I would say take these texts and work through them, get the Piper book, work through it, read through it, think about it, pray about it, take time. But I want you to know 
this great love that God has and gives only to the elect. It's a special kind of love. The great love with which He loved us, He made us alive. He doesn't make everybody alive. Therefore, He doesn't love everyone with this great love. Do you see? I want you to know this special love. Now, I'll try to wrap up here. We'll talk about the evangelism point later. Maybe next week, we'll see. Look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians to give the foundation for all this, and this is just as good a place to end on this that I know of. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of our will. Oh, sorry, wait a second. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, grace which, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works not some things, not most things, all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So just those are the three big points that we will close on. We are meant to be humbled by this truth, not bragging that we know something, humbled by it. Number two, all glory, including the credit for your conversion, goes entirely to God. And number three, it assures us of God's special, selective, saving love for His own. I just want to read again the verse from Acts so you can hear it one more time. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone right now, I'm sure there have to be some, who either found this message somewhat, I don't know, irritating or not, not true or not biblical, or just difficult, difficult to see as good news. Lord, I pray, pray for them right now that in these coming days and weeks as they perhaps ponder this doctrine more deeply, as they read back through these passages again and again, pleading with You to make clear what the text says and what it means and how it's good and true. Lord, I pray that there would be a turn for anyone listening right now who doesn't yet believe in the doctrine of unconditional election, that You would show them not an ugly thing, 
that you would open their eyes to see, as Edward said, a doctrine that is sweet, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God, help us see you as the center of the world, the great sun that we revolve around. We are not the center. You are. And for your great name and for your great glory, you have raised up some vessels of mercy to undeservedly be saved, like Israel in the Exodus, and some like the Egyptians, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known your great grace to your people. Lord, thank You for those in here who know You, that You have called us from death to life, and that the very willingness to trust You can only be attributed to Your sovereign mercy in our lives. Help us to exult in these truths. Help these truths to flatten us, to humble us. Where would I be if Your grace had not intervened? We love because You first loved us. And so, God, help these truths to be driven into our heart, to transform us, to shape the way we live. I pray they could be truths we live by and even die by at the end of life, trusting in Your providence and Your good care. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.